You know, I often wonder if Paul, you know, we're reading about uh, in your Bibles, chapter 13, really around verse 38 is what we'll pick up our, our teaching from last Sunday when we covered Resurrection Day. Lord had us perfectly in this place, but I have often wondered when Paul was going through a lot of his trials, a lot of his struggles, you know, or is even, you know, I think of James, right? You know, they called him Camelney. That was his nickname, you know, and it's because he spent so long on his knees. Actually, when he went and uh, he was being martyred, they couldn't even straighten out his legs correctly to martyr him. He spent so much time on his knees, and I can only imagine, I mean, obviously, James is the half, half brother. We're going to spend that time when we get in really in the verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter 15, we're going to see the Jerusalem Council and how I've desired that we would get to this pain and place in the passage here in Scripture because it's all about grace. It's not about the law. It's not about the Judaizers coming after Paul and following him around and stirring up the multitudes in trouble. It's all about what God has always wanted to do, and that was to give us his love and his grace and transform our hearts so that we would become more like him and less like us. So sweet, so gentle and beautiful. And so as we pick up here this morning, I can't help but thinking that's why the enemy is, I know some of it's spiritual, I do, why the enemy's uh, just, the, the things, if you could know all the things that have happened this morning in our lives and maybe my life and specifically, and just thwarting me, trying not to even get me here to preach this message this morning and, uh, and all the distractions about it, I'm like, Lord God, you must have something very special you want to say to your people here. And so, you know, as I prayed, let me get out of the way. Let the Holy Spirit speak and minister to his children. So we'll pick up in, in verse 38 here. And again, setting the context you weren't with us, this is, this is Paul's really first sermon. That's his Roman name, you know that. And as we look at his first sermon, it's also his longest sermon. It's a, it's a template for us, if I can say it that way, because as we look about it, it points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, po- it points to the justification and forgiveness of sins. That's his whole argument. It wasn't about how even the humanity of Jesus Christ that way. It was really about the divinity, about how God saves and how he sent his only begotten son for everyone. And he could have preached anything. I mean, you know, he could have preached anything, but that's the one thing that he wanted everyone to hear is that he loves them and that he's come to forgive our sins and set us right with a father so that we could spend eternity with him. We've heard that a hundred times, haven't we? If not a thousand. But if we really thought about that, it changes everything. It changes everything in us. And so therefore, as he, he reads here in verse 38, I'll begin, therefore, let it be known, you brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This is the central message of his, of his sermon. And by him, everyone, notice that with me, He's not a respecter of persons. It's not the rich. It's not the poor. It's not the this, that, and the other thing. God is not the author of division. God is the author of unity. Man is the author of division. The devil from the pit of hell is the author of division. He says everyone who believes is justified. Have you ever thought about that? Justified. It means as if you've never done anything wrong. We sometimes sing that song. We sung it last Sunday, as if you never had sinned. 
He doesn't just cover it. I mean, it's not, it's not what God began to do when he established in his law and the yearly atonement of passing sin onto the, the animal through the sacrifice of blood. This isn't what God did through that. That's a covering. This is, that, that's what you read in the Hebrew. If you read the Hebrew and you go back to the Old Testament, we're in Exodus, we cover that as we're getting into the ceremonial law. It's a covering. It was never meant to be an eradication. That's why they had to do it annually. But this justification as we read and we'll get, we can't wait till we get to the book of Romans. We're going there after Acts. Oh my, what a theological treatise. As we go through and look at that and we start to understand justification, I mean, Martin Luther, many of you know Martin Luther, the reformer. When he read that, it changed everything for him because he understood it wasn't works-based. He understood things were different, that Jesus Christ sent his only begotten son and it was just as he said and he meant what he said. He replaced it with his imputed righteousness. And that's why the enemy, think about it, what's the number one thing he loves to do to all of us here? Condemn us. He loves to whisper in our ear how we're not good enough, how we've made mistakes, how we blow it. And he keeps telling us, look at you. You think you're so holy, so mighty. You call yourself a Christian. You're a fake. Maybe that's just the inner ear I hear from the enemy. How dare you stand up there and preach the word of God? And I follow after my master. Get behind me, Satan. I take every thought captive. That's what Jesus Christ wants all of you and me to do. To not be caught in the snare of the devil. And that's what Paul here is trying to communicate. You're justified. There is no sin. Your account is set clean. If there's anybody here that that hasn't had that settled in your heart, please don't leave here today without sitting down and talking about this, whether it's with an usher or me. But he said, I justified you from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's right there. What the law couldn't do, Jesus Christ could. Amen? Beware, therefore. Now he gives a warning to unbelievers. He gives a warning to those that hear the word of God and turn away. It's sobering. He says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will no no means believe. He's he's quoting Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5 there. Though one were to declare it to you. And that's the same thing today. People, you and I, declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are men and women today that still turn aside from the good news because of the hardness of their hearts. But we ought not to respond in anger. We ought not to respond in, in a way where we're indifferent. That's God's creation. And he already said he desires everyone to be justified, everyone to be forgiven, everyone to be seated with him in heaven. We're not the Bible thumb. We're to express the true love of Jesus Christ by being that salt. We're going to cover it here in a minute. You know what's interesting when we talk about salt and light? It's something I was just studying because when we get to verse 47, we'll cover it. But it's something God showed me. You know in heaven how there's no sun that way, Jesus Christ? We've read it in the book of Revelation, how there's no sun that way and how he is the light, and how when you look at the gates and the walls, and if you 
remember the study. If not, you can get it on the web or on the radio. You can go back and listen. And how he talks about how the walls almost have these colors and there's clearness. And God was describing to me in my heart about the refraction of everything he's doing with the light that, emanates, that comes from him. And I started thinking about that and said, really, Lord, the light that's in us is nothing more than a refraction from the light that's in you as born-again believers in Christ. Anything that we do that's good is refracted directly from you and your grace. And that's how we know when people have spent time with Jesus because they come away more like him, tender and grace-filled, not not quick to anger, gentle, meek, strength under control. So as we continue on, it says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them next Sabbath. Do you see that response? They heard the word of God. They heard the truth and they couldn't get enough of it. Isn't that a right heart? Don't you long for that kind of revival again where people are pouring into the church to hear the word of God in truth, not man's wisdom, not what some guy thinks. Who cares what I think? What does Jesus Christ tell us? He says they beg these words that they might be preached next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, right, followed Paul and Barnabas, who speak to them, persuaded them. Now, this is important. I want to clear this, clarify this because some people read this in the Greek, they think, oh, they're talking them into it. That's not what this means. This is in the present perfect tense in the Greek. What it's actually talking about is a continuation. They're trying to encourage them to continue in what they just heard the previous Sabbath or Shabbat. He wants them to continue on in there. Slightly different than how we would use it in our vernacular today. Them to continue in what? The grace of God. Not to pick up the law and the legalism. You know, sometimes Christians can be more harsh to other Christians than non-believers. We can get so caught up in judging one another. Look, I get it. Some of us believe that the Lord has put us here on earth to point out the problems in the church. I, I get it. If I'm talking to you this morning, I'm not trying to offend you. But are you doing it in grace and unity? Or are you just ripping things apart? Because if you're ripping it apart, that's not of the Lord. That's divisive. But if you do it in the grace of God, well, that's harmony. That's harmony. To continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Can you imagine how wonderful? I pray that very prayer for this area. As we move into this new building and we now can fit two or three times what we have, God, fill it up and keep going, Lord. More and more, your, your, you know, unbelievers and your saints get discipled and your unbelievers come in and hear the word, Jesus, and be set free. But so this whole city comes out to hear the word. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Can you imagine? When the religious leaders of that time in the synagogues hear this. They had already invited Paul to speak. They didn't have a problem with what Paul said. When he talked about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alive and resurrected and how he's forgiving of sin, that wasn't the problem. What's the problem here? Jealousy. 
They're envious because what? Because all of a sudden, they're just reading the word of God. They're doing what we do here. We don't have fancy programs. We read the word of God. We trust that the Holy Spirit ministers to the hearts of the people and renews the mind. That's what they did. But the religious leaders are looking on and going, well, well, that can't be. Why is that happening? And what do they do? They begin contradicting and blaspheming. They oppose the saying spoken by Paul, and then they all of a sudden now have a problem with it. Now, when the whole multitude of the city wasn't coming, no, it's okay, Paul, what you're doing. But now when followers, people are coming out, and hearts are being transformed. Oh, that's a problem. Satan won't stand for that. You ever notice in your life when you, you sort of step back sometimes and you find yourself in this place where maybe you're not serving where God's called you or doing the things he's shown you? How often things seem to just work low. You don't feel like you're under constant you know, oppression or affliction that way, if I can say it. At least that's happened in my life. But the minute I honor and hear the word of God and I begin to follow and do what he says, it's like sometimes it's the spiritual battle that rages on. The bullseye gets bigger again. The enemy can't stand it. Because what's the problem here? Remember what it all goes back to. Lucifer, a fallen angel. Because of why? Because of pride, because of jealousy. The very thing we see here, envy. And he wants to be worshipped as God. And so when he sees people worshipping the true and living God, what's he do? Well, he sends his forces in. And he happens to be using these religious leaders. Now, I'm not saying these religious leaders are bad men. But I am saying that even good people can be used, not demon that We're not talking about anything like that. But if we don't bring everything to the Lord and test it in the spirit of God, what we could be doing may not be of the Lord, even though it could be very what we think well-intentioned. I mean, if you talk to Saul of Tarsus before he was converted on the Damascus Road experience, he would have looked you square in the eyes with all the zeal he had and said, I am doing the right thing. I am killing Christians. They are blaspheming, wouldn't you? That's why he went out and got court orders and papers to go out and kill the Christians. But after he had that experience, he realized he was misdirected. That's often what we see even in Christian circles today. A misdirection. It doesn't mean the people are evil or bad. Some are, actually. I'm not saying they're not. Okay? But a lot of times it's a misdirection. So these men, they begin to contradict and blaspheme and saying that's what Paul's doing and then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Look at that. They don't run away. They, they stand in it. They stand in it. They, they understand what's coming and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, what's that tell us? There's a choice, loud and clear. For you to be able to reject something, you must be able to choose something. There was a choice here. He says, but you reject it and you judge yourselves by, in other words, by rejecting it, you now have judged yourselves or brought judgment to yourselves, either way, however you want to apply that, unworthy of everlasting life. Because you would not humble yourself and you would not listen to the words of God, as Paul already said, you know, you despisers and 
quoted Habakkuk, he's saying, well, ultimately, it's got an eternal consequence. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. That's such a, underline that in your Bibles. You and I, if you're not of Jewish origin here, that's our verse, man. That's our verse. For so the Lord has commanded us, He's going to quote Isaiah here, 49.6. He says, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. Again, I was telling you this, this passage, how important it was. That light, what does light do again? Refract. It refracts, doesn't it? He says, I set you as a light to the Gentiles. You were supposed to refract the light of Christ, the light of God, the Father. That's what you were put here for. It's not that you as a people were any different or better than another people, Hebrews. But you were my people and still are my people. That doesn't ever change. That you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That was God's plan. And now the Gentiles, many of us here, we have the opportunity to go back. We had chosen people ministries here a month ago or a few weeks ago. And they came in and they talked about Messiah and the Passover, and how many Jews are getting saved. You know, and they invited us to go to Brooklyn here, and I don't know, I think it's July or August, to go and witness and minister to the Jewish people. And I hope we send a big, a big team from here. I can't wait to go out to my Jewish friends and tell them about Messiah. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified Paul and Barnabas. Isn't that what that says there? No, what did they glorify? The word of the Lord. It's not men. It's never been men. It's the word of the Lord, the Bible you have in your hands. It's supernatural. It's God-breathed. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we have to keep this in context. This passage, oh boy, do I get a stir from, and maybe even afterwards. You see, pastor, there it is. I said, I don't see John Calvin's initials in there. And I don't see, you know, Arminiast or, or, you know, the Arminiast, you know, credentials in there. My Bible doesn't talk about man's philosophy. My Bible talks about the word of God. And at the end of the day, the context in this was that they had a choice and they could choose. And here we see that what I believe this is talking about, and again, you be Bereans and go back and study this. I can't say I'm hard and fast on this to be transparent with you. I sometimes go back and forth on this very particular passage. I will be completely transparent for you because one minute I'm arguing this way and next minute I'm arguing that way and it's, I, I keep saying, Lord, I don't understand it all and I don't need to. I understand what's important and that you're my master, my God, my Lord, and I love you. But what he's talking about here is you'll get a lot of times and I'll just make it quick for you. The Calvinists believe this is a passage that specifically talks about how predestination, certain people were predestined to go to heaven, certain people were predestined to go to hell. And there's no choice in the matter. That's more of a Calvinist view and that's way more complex. I can go into all five or seven, but I don't want to talk about man's philosophies here. The other approach or the other thought, there's actually three of them, Pelagianism too, but the, the second one that's most popular is Arminiast. 
And if you, if you're, and I think I'm saying that right, yeah, if, Arminianism, yeah. And if you're practicing that, you kind of err more on, well, faith and faith alone, which is what I believe the Bible does teach. Um, but certainly in this particular passage, if you go back and you exegete the Greek, you will come with the word anointed, right? That's what it says here. You're ordained, excuse me, not anointed. That's the word in the Greek, actually. Better translated than appointed is even ordained. And so it is an interesting word. However, when I also look, and every other time that this has been used throughout Scripture, and I look up ordination, or, you know, not the way we think of ordained today, but command being sent, if I could say it that way, what it does point to, or what it seems to point to, also speaks of a foreknowledge. The Holy Spirit sent out who? Paul and Barnabas, right? And the Holy Spirit foreknew that. Now, to get into the, the idea of how we have perfect choice and how yet God has foreknowledge, you know, I've heard many men in the pastorate try to explain that. All of them, I believe, falling very shallow and shy of God's truth in that because the idea behind it is, well, they say, well, it's like being in a car and looking in a rearview mirror. You're still going forward, but you at the same time can see what's behind you. And I'm like, yeah, God doesn't need a mirror, right? I get the, an illustration here. It's kind of like the egg with the Trinity, not close. But if I could explain it to you, what God does teach us is that, as we just read, and again, the context here is choice. There was choice because you chose or to reject what happens. You basically here, it says that, you rejected it and you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Therefore, it's a choice. And that's the context of this passage. We had context as king, good hermeneutics. But at the same time, it talks about this ordination and I believe what it's speaking to is the foreknowledge. And I don't know how to tie this together other than I believe that's what, look, I, I have to believe, I have to bring out what the Greek says and the Greek says, you know, you're ordained and or you're uh, appointed but it's speaking somehow of God knowing, because that's what it does speak of. But at the same time, it's speaking of how we have free choice. So what I, the difference I want to clearly point out, though, is I don't see it where it says that God sends anybody to hell. I never see that in any of my scripture. However, I do see that man has choice, and God seems to know what that choice will be, or foreknowledge to some capacity like that. Anything more than that, you need to go to Jesus Christ directly. I got nothing. So I'm doing the best I can with the word and I'm trying to represent both aspects of that and I gotta be faithful to the Greek and I gotta be faithful to the word and what it teaches in context. You be Bereans, but I believe as I've stated, it's choice. If I had to, if I had to in the context of this, I'd be taking more of an Arminianist approach, although again, I will not embrace a man's philosophy. I won't, just no different than I won't embrace Calvinism as a man's philosophy. You be Bereans and you accept what God has given you and testifies to you. The good thing is, if you're here and you're of the free will bent, hey man, you're, you've accepted Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven, right? Praise the Lord. If you're here and you're of the other bent, hey, you thought you were gonna be here anyway, so enjoy the word of God and get, you know, get wrecked, you know? So either way, praise the Lord, right? You, you with me? All right, now that we tackled man's philosophy, let's actually get back to what the word of God has to say. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So the truth's going forth. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. And the chief men of the city raised up persecution 
Now, I'm not being funny here, but you want to stir up a crowd, you get the women, you get the men, and you have them go in and start getting at it, and you better believe, especially if they're prominent women, women that are well-to-do, they're they're more than happy to argue a very good point, and the chief men right along with them, oh my, you can imagine the contention you have here. Now, this is not me picking on any women. I'm just saying, guys, women are very logical, and they're very good at arguing points. I have yielded to my wife on many occasions when she comes back around with something, and I just uh, didn't see that coming. So praise the Lord for my helpmate and for all you helpmates, because I think, men, we'd be in a lot more trouble. But, men, that doesn't get us off the hook. We're still to be the pastor of our homes. Amen? And the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Now, we're not told exactly what that means. Uh, you know, we're not, did they stone them? We know they didn't stone them, but we're not, you know, they pushed them out. Was there force? We don't know. It just says they expelled them. But they shook off the dust from their feet. Many of you know this. We've talked about it in the Gospels. When you shake off the dust from your feet, this was very common practice in that day. Uh, if you would go into Gentile territory, and you had your sandals on. When you would make your way back to Jerusalem or Judea or in specific areas like that, you would take your sandals and you would shake them off because the idea was is that Jerusalem is God's resting place or God's dwelling place. Therefore, it's holy. And when you leave Jerusalem, you're leaving and touching something that's unholy or defiled. Much like we get from, and this is where it started from, was in Exodus when Moses went up to the mountain. And what did God say to him? Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. This is where it came from, okay? This is the idea. They took it and made it their own through tradition. There's no commandment necessarily to do that that way. What Jesus Christ actually commanded was slightly different. Jesus said, hey, even in Israel, if you go, or Jerusalem that way, if you go, because when he sent out the disciples and they don't listen to you in the word, what are you to do? You're to take your sandals off and do what? Shake them off and dust them off. So he even said, hey, even in Jerusalem, right? In other words, you know, there's no get out of jail card like that. So what they do is they take off and shook off the dust from their feet against them saying, hey, man, I'm giving you up to the Lord that way and came to Iconium. But notice with me, they didn't quit. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with joy this morning? That's a mark of the Holy Spirit. Now, and by the way, many of you, if I had a map, I I apologize. Iconium's about 80 miles away. It's about a three to five day trip on foot. Okay, so this whole thing, I want you to understand, this is Paul's first missionary journey. We kind of talked about that a little bit last week. He'll go 700 miles on foot by land. He'll do another 700 miles on water, you know, on a ship that way. Not walking on the water, only, you know, Peter and Jesus did that. But, you know, he'll turn around and he'll do 1,400 miles on his first missionary trip. Can you imagine? Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke, what do you think they spoke? The word of God. That a great multitude of both Jews and of the Greeks believed. That's what the word of God does. It pierces the heart. Some people have said, well, I have family members, pastor. I, I so desperately want them to believe. Tell them, get them in the word. 
Well, what do you mean? I said, come to a Bible study on a Wednesday or bring them to church. Well, are they ready for that? Can they not be ready for that? This is God's word. He created them. He created this very word to be written on the tablets of their heart. It's where it belongs. It doesn't belong sitting on a shelf. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, a very strong word, very sobering, against the brethren. So here's where we begin to see the introduction, if you're taking notes, to the whole idea of Judaizing. Some of you may know that term as we get into the second, or even part of the first and second. We'll see that one of the reasons the Jerusalem Council met, and praise God, it was wisdom that they did, was because everything was boiling down to two things, and it was very, very simple. Ceremonial law. The moral law has never changed. The moral law is still in effect for us today, isn't it? Are you allowed to steal? No, right? Are you allowed to murder? No, right? That hasn't changed. God hasn't changed the moral law, right? But are we under the Sabbath that has to be on Saturday specifically? Nope, nope. Are we under circumcision? Does everyone here have to be circumcised? Nope, right? Uh, hence grace, right? We talk about grace. He says, you know, well, we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But, but the point is, when you go through and look at this, that's what it means why they're poisoning. They're coming along and they're coming back around after Paul and Barnabas are there and they're gonna turn around and say, no, 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 you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the kosher law, okay? What did, the, what did Jesus tell us in the parable about how the word would be planted but then there would be those that would be what? Specifically a bird representing the devil, if you know the parable, you know. He would come and do what? Steal. Steal that seed. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. We don't know exactly how long they were there. Who was bearing witness to the word. Again, what were they talking about there? Not man's philosophy, but the word of God is what was being preached. And of his, or of his grace. And how they didn't need to work their way into heaven but it's by faith alone. Now notice another thing with me, and this is awesome. Have you ever gone to places, maybe visiting other places, where they will say, hey, we want Jesus to be here, so there's gonna be this massive manifestation of signs and miracles. Everywhere you read in the Bible, and I encourage you to be Bereans and read this, it saves us from emotionalism. Do you know what that is? It's where you come in and there's a rock concert and you begin to get you know, emotionally moved by that. Or you come in and, and you get this, you know, in, in Calvary chapels, we, we hold the Holy Spirit in very high, um, you know, in a very high place that way as obviously the third person of the Trinity, God. And so we know he does all things decently in order that way. We, don't, we believe the gifts are very much in order today being used. However, again as the scriptures teach in Corinthians and what have you, okay? But there's some that have said, no, there's no gifts today. No gifts manifested for today. We would call them sensationists, ones that don't believe that. So they've gone to one extreme, right? And then you've had this other extreme where they got like flags and they're like barking like dogs and they're running around doing flips and, you know, carrying on. It's, you think you're at the circus, right? And I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm simply stating what I've seen. Simply stating what I'm seeing. And so you've got these extremes on both ends here, okay? And the idea, and what we're reading here, right, 
is that God very clearly said, and I bring you back again to verse three, therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. Then what did he do? He granted signs. So do signs and wonders precede the word of God or do the word of God get established doctrine and then people manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit? Do we see that? That's important. I feel like that's upside down in some 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 places. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I'll lay it down hot. So they've been done by their hands. Notice that with me. The Bible says that there are men and women that will actually take and do things of their own will and call it the Holy Spirit. The Bible testifies to it right here. Verse four, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. What's apostle mean? What's the word mean in the Greek? Sent ones, right? Sent ones. So who, who are they including in that? Barnabas, Paul, right? Right? And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra in Derby. Now that's about another 50 miles away they're going to be, they're going to be on foot again traveling, okay? It's okay to flee. If the Lord tells you keep going, you don't have to stay, you know what I mean? I, I, I say this because some people think, man, you know, if God calls you to a place and you're serving, whether it's here in the States or internationally, and there's things that are going on that are just, you know, you, you, there's nothing wrong with fleeing to safety. However, if God calls you to stay, well, then you stay. But God, God clearly moved them on. I mean, we know they wanted to make their way to Asia too, and God said what? Hold on, hold on, right? So they clearly are in touch with the Spirit. And they were preaching the gospel there. This is what, the third or fourth time we've read that? Every single time in the book of Acts, we look at what the early church did. They were preaching the word of God. And in Lystra, a certain man, right? Now we get these three details about this man. Without strength in his feet, first detail, right? Was sitting, that's who he was there, sitting there. A cripple from his mother's womb. We know this is from the very beginning. He was crippled that way. And the third detail who had never walked. Now, we're going to see this miracle here. Now, this is the third time we're seeing a miracle, right? You might remember um, back in chapter 3 at the beautiful gate when Peter was making his way up for prayer, not to go to listen to their thing, but to actually go to prayer meeting there. He was making his way up there, and he saw this man sitting in front of the beautiful gate, and what did he do? The man asked for you know, help on things, for things like that, and he says, well, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have to give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand and walk. And the man was able to leap up and walk. Right? Second time, Aeus, right, chapter 9, I believe. You can go back and look at that. I believe it's chapter 9. Went back, and we saw the second miracle again. This is the third healing in the book of Acts. Our God heals. Now, I will say that I, I pray that our, often that our Lord heals maybe more. I'd, how do I say this a different way? I pray and ask God to heal more than maybe according to his will, if I could say it that way. What I mean is I wish every single person with any infirmity was healed. I think we all would pray that, wouldn't we? That's our desires. Sometimes the answer is no. That doesn't mean that you lack faith. 
that doesn't mean that there's anything necessarily wrong. That ultimately could mean that's God's will be done. And I just, again, I want to say that because there's many that have come out of churches where they've been told, and, and, and I think they prey on the women especially, and I've got to be honest with you, many things anger me, but this one really angers me a lot, is when I see a woman come out and she's been broken and she'll come in and say, well, pastor, I can't be in church anymore. I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore because I don't have faith. I don't have enough faith and the, the pastor at the church told me that and that's why I'm not, I'm not well. You know, you know, you break people like that. You wreck people. You know, church is a sanctified hospital. We're all broken, man. We're all looking for healing. But I can't think of anything that, that destroys me more because they prey on people that way. Send your money. If you don't send enough money, that's why you're not being healed. I just, you know, you heard Joel Osteen's retiring, right? Was it $51 million later? Come on. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I tell you, I don't want to be that man standing before his Lord. But I do pray. I pray that he turns and humbles his heart, you know. And everyone has the opportunity to get right with God. And so here's this man. And Paul, you know, he heard Paul speaking and he had served him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Now, how does that look? We, we don't know entirely. I can remember back to Pastor Chuck um, years ago, years and years ago, at the beginning of the hippie movement, I remember watching, or, or was either watching a video or I was listening to this. I mean, we're, we're talking 1960s, you know, late, early 70s like that. He was in the sanctuary and... Uh, and he, I remember he finished his sermon, or it was just, yeah, he had finished his sermon, he came down, because it was recorded, or it's, it's been captured, and he comes down, and, and I've never seen Pastor Chuck do this, if you know, you know, I, I don't think there's many people in here that I've come up to and said, you know, laid hands, and said, oh, praise the Lord, you know, get up and walk, right, and that, you need to, you better be, you better be sure that the Holy Spirit is telling you this, so Pastor Chuck comes down, he sees this man in a wheelchair sitting in the front and he comes up to him and he says, stand, arise, and walk. And the guy just, which I thought was miraculous, the guy just stood up and walked. I would have been like, hey man, I, if I, I wouldn't be in this wheelchair if I could, you know. you know." But this, this man had faith. Like He just stood up and he walked. And it was, it was an amazing miracle to see that. You know, Praise the Lord. I, I can't say he saw that often. I, I can't remember any other time he did that ever actually. But his son had come to him and said, Dad, but there was a guy sitting next to him. He says, Son, I, all I know is I felt like the Holy Spirit was yelling in my ear, go up to that man and tell him, stand and walk. You've been healed. He says, I didn't hear anything for this other man. I, 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 all I can do is say what the Holy Spirit showed me. All I could do is to be faithful that way. And again, I go back to say that, you know, while we see this, we desire more miracles in the church of healing today, don't we? Let's be praying that way. We serve a big God. Our God heals today. We ought to be praying that way. We ought to be praying with that heart and spirit that God wants to heal and will heal. But if he doesn't, that's not because of anything you've done necessarily. 
right? I mean, obviously, you know, if there's a sin issue or something, yeah, okay, but that out of the way. Sometimes, again, the answer's no, and, and you got a better plan ahead of you if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You're gonna be with Jesus. Any one of us would trade in a heartbeat in here. We've, we've, in this age, we've grown to fear death in a way that is unnatural. First of all, death is unnatural itself. But we've grown to fear death as though we're trying to hold on so tight to this life. It's part of the lie. Death is nothing but a door for born-again believers in Jesus Christ to your Savior. Now, certainly we don't wish it, right? We're not out there working it. Well, I'm going to go out and run in front of a bus because, boy, I really want to be with Jesus today. No, you got to screw loose. All right, come in and talk to us. We need to sit down and talk. Don't do anything stupid, right? But that's not what we're talking about. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus doesn't want you to be afraid, wherever you are, whoever you are. So he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now, I don't know about you, that word, uh, halome, in the, in the Greek there, leaped. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the idea that this man's knees, his ligaments, his muscles, his cartilage, all of it just worked. How many, anybody in here ever had a knee operation or a knee procedure? A, one per, okay, a couple people, a couple, all right. Let me ask you a question. Right after that procedure, did you get out and run? No, you might have tried to stand up and put a little pressure on it. How about anybody have a hip I know one guy that's had a hip, hip two, okay, maybe two of people have had hip in here. Did you get out of bed that day and be like, you know what, I'm feeling like the New York Marathon's calling me? No, right? You were in bed, you had to go and heal and do some PT and the whole process, very painful, but praise the Lord, you're here and you're with us and you're, you're mobile again and all that. This man instantly leaps up the muscles is of entropy. I mean, there's nothing. Do you, do you understand how supernatural this is? This isn't like a guy that just kind of, I mean, this is a complete restoration and healing, or I don't even know if restoration's the right term, because it says he was born that way. Maybe there were certain muscles or ligaments that were never there, but he's given everything he needs, and that's the way our God heals. It didn't have to be progressive. It wasn't like wait for it. It was like, boom, the Lord just did it. And this man, did you ever think about this man? Standing there from his very birth, he was not able to walk. And to hear somebody come up to you and say, stand and walk. Let me ask you a question. Would you have the faith to leap like that? Wouldn't you maybe, and I want you all to be real, because this is real. Wouldn't you find a chair next to you? Something to hold on to, maybe make your way up, kind of try to get your balance. See if you, you know, take your step. Are you going to fall? What's this cat do? He leapt. Jumped right up on his feet. Boom, he's there. We got a big God. We got a big God. This man had faith. He leapt and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Oh, my. And Barnabas they called Jupiter, or Zeus. Jupiter is the uh, Roman name. 
And Paul, and I think it's Mercurios or something like that, or Mercurio is the uh, Roman name for that, for Hermes. Greek is the Hermes and Zeus is the Greek. Because he was the chief speaker. Now, it's important. If you don't have context, this might seem weird. Why are they talking about Zeus and Hermes here? And, and did you notice Paul was named Hermes? You know he wanted to be Zeus. I mean, if there had to be, you know, the stronger guy. Can you imagine you're the guy that's called Hermes? Yeah, I'm the talker. That's what I do. You know, I, he's like, well, are you sure he's Zeus? Maybe I'm No. But, there, I mean, if you had to pick a guy, I'm thinking, man, he got cheated. But why this is a big deal in the context, if you would have gone back, if you know Greek mythology, is that in this area, it was said, or they had a tradition, Ovid, there was a man by the name of Ovid there, and what they believed is years and years prior to this, like I don't remember how many, I can't remember what I read, what it was 57, something like that, years before this. They believed that these two gods came in a human form. And what happened is they came in a human form and they came down there and they went and they went and they started to intermingle with the people. And as they intermingled with the people, they went up to them and said, hey, do you have anything to eat? Do you, do you have anything to drink? Is there, is it, would, you, would you mind clothing me? And all these people basically turned their back on them. No, we have no food for you. No, we have nothing to drink. No, no, our home is very messy, very messy right now. And so they proceeded out and went up, and then as they were making their route, they found this older couple this man and this woman. And they went up to this man and woman and looked at them and said, do you have anything? And as the story goes, and this is a folklore story, as the story goes, he says yes. And he gives him part of his bread that he has. And the woman, she gives him a cup of water with her hands. And so she turns around and they feed this man and they give him a robe like that's something of honor to honor this man or honor these men. And they said, will you come with us? And so they make their way up sort of like a mountainous area and they kind of make their way up past the normal area of Lystra where they look down into the valley. And supposedly they, they call, again, Greek mythology, they call some type of you know, destruction down on punishment down on the people and all the people perish. So this is what's sort of going on at Lystra right here, okay? They've got this built and brainwashed into them because of the tradition of the people. And they've got this priest there that set up a temple to Zeus. And so he's going to get involved in this because they think, what are they thinking is happening again? It was, it was like a nursery rhyme. It was passed down to them and down to their children. So what do you think is happening? They think who's appeared before them. These two gods again in human form. Are you, are you now tracking? Context matters, doesn't it? If you read this the first time, didn't know that context, and you didn't you know, know the history of that, you'd be like, I don't know why this, why are they picking Zeus? Well, this is, this is why. So then, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate. You know, he's, somebody must have gone up and said, hey man, they're, the, the, the Zeus and everything. He's, oh, what am I doing here? I'm in the temple. I got to, well, that should have been a key first, that the priest had to be summoned to go, well, obviously he doesn't know that God, does he? It's a fake God, but you know what I mean, idolatry. So he's got to go down, and so he starts bringing the oxen. He thinks he's going to sacrifice them intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul, notice that both of them are called apostles, sent ones here, they tore their clothes. Why'd they tear their clothes? Because it's blasphemous. It's blasphemy, right? So they tore their clothes and rang among the multitudes, crying out, blasphemy, you know, and saying, men, why are you doing these things? 
We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all the things that are in them, who is a bygone, who in bygone, excuse me, generations past, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness. And God has never done that, even with the remnants through all the ages. There's always been a man that God has used, whether it was a prophet in the Old Testament or even modern-day prophets today, and I believe Billy Graham was a modern-day prophet being used to spread the word of God, or prophetess that way. In that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitude. So now think about this. Where did they come from? Iconium. They traveled. They've been following him. Now you understand why we call them Judaizers. Now you're seeing why the term came about in the time. They came 130 miles. So they follow him all the way back from when he was in Antioch. Then they came to Iconium. Then in Lystra. Now they're making their way here and they're going to keep following these guys as they made their way to Derby and everything like that. And what are they doing? They're going in and they're just trying to persuade them to keep the law, which is why chapter 15 is really important. So the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and persuaded the multitudes. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Supposing, in the Greek, not a good translation in my opinion, in in our Bibles today. Why do I say that? 15 times this is used in the Greek. And every single time, it points to a believing or knowing, not a maybe. They thought he was dead. That's what this is saying, believing him to be dead. Go and search it 15 times, you'll find it. Use Blue Letter Bible. It's a free online software. Go and search the Greek. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. Can you imagine that? Now, I believe, and I think many other believe, this is at that point when he had, because you remember, this is the same time that Galatians, right? When we read the book of the epistle of Galatians, going on. This is right around that same time frame. And in Galatians, he talks about how he went to the third heaven. There was an experience. Now, I, I can't say for certain, but, but I believe this when he was there. Because if you've heard people that have had near-death experiences, a lot of times they'll say, I saw a great light, no, this majesty, it was beautiful. Okay. So he's saying when he rose up and went into the city, he went back into the city. What does that mean? That means he's incredibly bold or brazen, which means foolish, right? Bold and foolish. He's one or the other here. Well, let's turn to Galatians. Let's, let's look this up here. Trying to think where it would be. Uh, I think I want to say Galatians chapter 2 or 3, somewhere in there. Give me a minute. Uh, It's Galatians chapter 2. I think it's in Galatians, yeah. No, you know what? I'm thinking, no, it's 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Yep, yep. My apologies, everyone. I'm thinking as I'm going through it, I'm looking at it, I'm like, no, that's not right. Thank you, Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 12. 
You there? It says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I didn't, who's he talking about? Himself. I like how he did it, humility. Whether in the, how do we know 14 years ago too, by the way? That's where, now I know why the Lord's there. Galatians talks about, Galatians chapter three, it says in 14 years ago. Now I know why. Keep your finger here. I apologize to everyone. You guys are like pastors lost it. But it's God just moving and I'm just catching up with him. Look at Galatians chapter two. Keep your finger where it was though. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, right? Talking about his ministry, his first missionary journey. This is describing his first missionary journey here. Okay, and we could have read on, and I will. And I went up to Revelation and communicated to them the gospel, and I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. So we even see then that he went privately with people. Lest by any means I might run and or had run in vain, right? Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, talking about the Judaizers. And this occurred because of the false brother was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth despite our liberty we have in Christ. Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to him who did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they, they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised and had been committed to me, <clears throat> and we'll read about this more in chapter 15 actually, that's the Jerusalem council, and they know that Paul was sent to the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised was sent to who? Peter. Remember Peter was sent to the, to the Jews that way, right? For he, brought work, for he brought and worked effectively for Peter and the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me Barnabas as a right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. That was at the end of the first missionary trip. Why do we know that? Because that's when they go to chapter 15 and there's the Jerusalem council and they all meet together and they not only send him, but they also send two others, which is wisdom because they wanted to make sure Paul and Barnabas we're not just testifying themselves. They're going to send two others from that council to go down. And I hope I'm not confusing you. I hope you're with me chronologically. So if we go back to 2 Corinthians now, a, pay, you know, a few pages over, that's the time, 14 years ago. That's why I believe that if you read this, it says now, you know, I know a man who was 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know. He's saying, look, I don't know if I was dead or alive. Or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows such one as was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up to paradise. Right? What's the, what's the first heaven, if we could say it that way, the way the Bible uses it? It's the sky, right? The atmosphere. What's the second? You move into the stellar, right? You start looking at outer space. Thank you. And how he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter, okay? So he can't even explain what he saw there. 
And then he's going to go on and later on explain why he won't boast and he won't even boast in his infirmities and how he has a thorn in the flesh and what have you. And you know 2 Corinthians 12. All right, back to our passage where we were now. So at this point, while he's brought out, clearly I believe he was dead or, or be brought back to life here because it says supposing to be dead. Again, we know that means knowing or believing. And it says he rose back up in weather and gathered back. And see, the only thing I could reconcile of this is that if you had a death experience and you went to the third heaven and you were in paradise, as it said in 2 Corinthians 12, and you saw the living God, and you turned around and you said, well, Lord, you know, man, this is, this is heavy, right? Because I don't know what else you'd say. This is heavy, right? It's worship and whatever. If that happened, as Paul said it happened to him, but if that happened, would you ever be afraid of anything? What could you be afraid of? Right? I mean, you saw or it appears to you as a living God, even if it was an experience, however you describe it. So now Paul comes back to alive, right? He's, he's not dead any longer. He's alive. He wakes up. Paul gets up. What's he thinking? It's like what he wrote about later. Don't fear what man can do to you. But the spirit, do you see how it ties in? What was he afraid of any longer? What are you afraid of? Afraid of what the spirit can do, not what, not what man can do to the flesh. He's got no power over you enemy has no power over you. It gave him a boldness where I think a lot of people would have been afraid. This man had boldness and he says he enters back in the city here. And the next day they parted with Barnabas to Derby. Now we're going to stop there. Man, we only got, yeah. We're going to stop there. We'll let the Lord. Please read ahead verses 21 through 28. We'll go into chapter 15. And uh, really, if you want to say right around verse 20, that's the end in that area of his first missionary journey. Okay, so this is going to be the end of Paul's first missionary journey here. Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to double back. If you go through and read this, I'll just give you a little kind of what's going to happen. He's going to double back through this whole area. And he doesn't take just the shortest route back to get to Antioch, um, Syria, right? Syrian Antioch. He goes back and he goes back all the different ways. And why is he going back? What's he going to do? Look at verse 22. He strengthens the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations and enter the kingdom of God. Boy, I don't have any more encouraging words than that for you this morning. That we must continue in the faith. And that's why no matter how we feel, no matter what we're going through, we stand and we know that in our weakness, God, his strength is so apparent when we're weak and we give all the glory to him for it, amen?